Welcome to The Waiting Room Revolution. We're so excited to announce our book, Hope for the Best, Plan for the Rest, Seven Keys for Navigating a Life-Changing Diagnosis, is available now in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Get a copy wherever you buy your books, and check out our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, for more information. So mm-hmm. it's not about treating people differently when you when you think, oh, there's mm-hmm. someone who's a lesbian who's coming here for care. Here's what mm-hmm. I need to do. Mm-hmm. It's treating people in a way where you could have someone who's trans or a lesbian or bisexual, and the mm-hmm. care that you're providing is inclusive whether or not they tell you who they are. That was Dr. Kimberly Aquaviva, a professor at the University of Virginia's School of Nursing. She is the author of The Handbook of LGBTQIA+, inclusive hospice and palliative care. We discuss her very personal story of losing her wife, Kathy, to ovarian cancer, and how that shaped her advocacy, and how we can provide person-centered, inclusive care. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Kim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks so much for inviting me. Mm -hmm. Thanks for joining. Well, my first question is, you are a social worker. And how did you get involved and interested in hospice palliative care and aging and LGBTQ issues? Great question. Um, So I had gone to undergrad at University of Pennsylvania for a degree in sociology, had then done my social work degree there, and was doing mainly work in the HIV and AIDS space was really, really excited about doing prevention-based work, Uh, went in to get my PhD in human sexuality with an intention of doing uh, basically prevention-based work. But while I was writing up my dissertation, I moved to Florida to be closer to a grandparent who was there Mm -hmm. and took a job at a local hospice. Uh, Originally, I had applied for jobs doing um, HIV and AIDS prevention work. They didn't have any positions open, but they did have positions open um, in doing hospice direct uh, direct care. And so I took that position and loved it. Um, I was in my late 20s and I absolutely just dove right into it, enjoyed it, and kept noticing that we didn't really have a lot of staff who understood how to provide care in a way that was inclusive of everyone within the LGBTQ community. So I started thinking about just as someone who was part of the community, I started thinking about, well, what are ways that we could do a better job of educating people in general about end of life care, and then educating folks who do this work about providing inclusive care. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing it ever since. Hmm. Here's a huge question. What does inclusive care look like for the LGBTQ community? Great. So one of the questions I get asked all the time is, don't LGBTQ folks uh, get sick and die like everybody else? What is different? Um, And historically, there were lots and lots and lots of like medical and nursing and social work textbooks that had chapters and still today, chapters focus on quote, special populations. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's always a chapter on people who are incarcerated. There's always one on people who are LGBTQ. um, And I see inclusive care as care that every single person who's providing hospice and palliative care can provide to everybody 
-hmm. without needing to know that someone is LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's not about treating people differently when you, when you think, oh, there's Mm -hmm. someone who's a lesbian who's coming here for care. Here's what Mm -hmm. I need to do. Mm -hmm. It's treating people in a way where you could have someone who's trans or a lesbian or bisexual and the Mm -hmm. care that you're providing is inclusive, whether or not they tell you who they are. Mm. So it's very Mm person-centered. It's person-centered and it's Mm -hmm. really focused on not putting the onus on patients and families to have to come out Mm -hmm. in order to get treated with dignity and respect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's so interesting because I mean, that sounds right up my alley because I feel like every human needs to be just treated as, you know, whoever they are. But we have had people on our podcast representing the LGBTQ Mm -hmm. community. Actually, they asked us to say community within the community. Yes. Um, So, um, and I remember she told us, you know, there are unique challenges Mm -hmm. to um, the LGBTQ Mm -hmm. community within the community. Um, And so how do you reconcile those unique challenges with just, you know, saying, let's just treat everyone equally? Yeah. So so I don't think that we treat everybody the same, but Mm -hmm. we do treat everyone equally. So with the same level of dignity and respect, but that means giving, um, meeting people's needs, unique needs that they bring. And so I, I think that for a lot of folks within the LGBTQ communities, um, Mm -hmm. because they're overlapping intersectional communities, Mm -hmm. that many people have some common experiences, let's say with, um, being fearful of of seeking care from a, a healthcare provider, worry being you know fearful of being judged or being treated differently, but some of the the issues or concerns may be common to people regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity. So things like does someone have a legal decision maker? That is something that could come up with anybody. Um, questions about advanced care planning, um, thinking about sexuality, relationship configurations really anyone, regardless of what their sexual orientation is or gender identity may come into hospice and palliative care with a unique configuration of needs that need to be met. So I think when we approach every patient and family with the idea that uh, we need to know who they are and be able to do the best job possible in meeting their needs, but also we need to be open to the idea that each and every patient we interact with um, could be uh, somebody who is ha- has issues that are similar to those of people within the LGBTQ communities uh, and maybe overlapping some of those issues. You could have a, a patient who says that they're married to somebody who is of another gender, and yet providing inclusive care means uh, not making assumptions about what their relationship looks like, what the family looks like, uh, not making assumptions that that's the only relationship, really keeping an open mind with everyone. I'm guessing some of those issues are what you talked about in your first book, mm-hmm. yes. um, LGBTQ mm-hmm. Inclusive Hospice and Palliative mm-hmm. Care, and came out in 2017, and it won mm-hmm. the American Journal of Nursing's Book of the Year Award in the hospice palliative care category. So Yay. it'd be lovely to tell a little bit about that book and what sure. people who pick it up might be finding in it. Sure. So when I uh, set out to write that book, I wanted to fill a need, what I saw as a need within the market of books in hospice and palliative care. So there are all of these amazing, fabulous Oxford texts that are fantastic. And Mm -hmm. some of my best colleagues and people that I respect the most in the world have 
edited those books and written chapters for those books, but they're giant um, and they're very academic. They have a heavily academic and clinical focus, but they're heavily academic. And they're also discipline specific. Most of them are, there's nursing, there's medicine, there's social work. I wanted to create something that would be practical, that would be written in plain language and would be written for all of the disciplines represented in a typical hospice team. Mm-hmm. But to do that in a way that had one voice and so one author, but then multiple um, experts who would then validate all the content using their own disciplines lens um, to validate the clinical content. So that was my dream. And I couldn't find anything out there that did that. And uh, I was fortunate. I found a publisher who was looking for exactly that. And so I, I moved forward with writing it and just really tried to take a practical approach. Uh, using the literature, using what the information is out there currently around clinical competencies for the different disciplines and try to say, okay, what does the average person providing care need to know on a very practical level? Mm -hmm. So that instead of talking about um, theoretically what people need to understand about assessing, uh, I wanted to present in a really practical way to say, these are the questions that you can ask people. And this is a good jumping off point. Mm -hmm. Have you had what kind of feedback have you had since the book came out? So good feedback, uh, good feedback. Uh, over and over again, I hear people say that it's not like any book they've read. Um, mm-hmm. Most of the books within medicine and nursing and social work are very mm-hmm. heavily academic, and there is a need for books that are a deep dive into the literature. Mm-hmm. But the feedback I've gotten from folks is that this is kind of their practical go-to guide Mm -hmm. Um, and whether or not people are interested in providing LGBTQ inclusive care. I've heard people say that they're, they find it to be the only guide that they've seen that gives you a practical guide to all Mm -hmm. of the disciplines, what you need to do to provide Mm -hmm. care, which was my goal. Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't want to write a book that only people who want to provide good care to LGBTQ people would buy Mm-hmm. Uh, because I want everybody to be providing good care. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to also just link back to our whole movement more than just the book, because our movement, I know you talked about writing for healthcare providers mm-hmm. and you talked about why, and it makes total sense. In some ways we took the opposite approach because I think mm-hmm. patients and families, mm-hmm. uh, not an opposite approach. In some ways we- we Complimentary. Yeah, because for patients and families who are starting a life-changing diagnosis, I'm not even sure they are- they know what to expect and it's really upstream. And so we really tried to do what you do, do very practical mm-hmm. things of what to say and what to ask so mm-hmm. that they could leach out a palliative approach to care it's without fantastic. the labels. Mm-hmm. And that took us a long time because as you probably mm-hmm. you know, can uh, you know, expect in the palliative care community, we're really good at talking to each other and yes. we know exactly what we mean when we say mm-hmm. palliative care versus specialist mm-hmm. and hospice benefit. But, you know, we had to sort of deconstruct all that so that upstream patients and families weren't so frightened by these terms. Mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. I, and I think that there's a huge need, a huge need. So many people have this idea that palliative care means you're dying um, or that you can't have um, that you can't be pursuing curative treatment. Mm-hmm. And I, I try to always be framing palliative care as aggressive treatment that it Mm -hmm. is aggressive palliative care, um, just in terms of helping people understand that Mm -hmm. it is leaning into something aggressively. uh, And you could be pursuing curative care, but it is aggressive palliation of symptoms. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I feel like it's a a perfect time to link back into what happened after your second book. And you've been quite open about this, that 
your partner, Kathy, was mm -hmm. diagnosed with ovarian cancer, yeah. quite aggressive. She passed mm -hmm. away several months later in 2019. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was that experience like? So, you know, it was it was very surreal because the book came out in 2017. 2018, I was visiting UVA and doing a presentation here. And they asked if I would be interested in coming as an endowed chair. And um, I was, uh, it was exciting. It was an exciting opportunity. And, uh, but I wasn't sure because of the laws here in Virginia around um, LGBTQ folks and employment. And mm -hmm. so they brought me back. I came to visit um, and again, and this time came uh, with Kathy and also with our son, Grayson. And we visited, fell in love with UVA. And um, I was like, this is great. And so in January of 2019, I signed the contract to come here. I was super excited. And then about less than a week later, uh, Kathy found out that she had ovarian cancer and very, very suddenly um, had had some health problems, but nothing that we, nothing at all that we thought was cancer. She'd had some GI issues and uh, what they thought was a UTI back in, um, in the fall and so uh, was diagnosed. And at the time she was diagnosed in the emergency department, she had fluid around her lungs, um, in her heart, uh, you know, around her heart, um, masses throughout her abdomen. And it was, it was very, very clear that things were um, not good. And so because Kathy was a palliative care person and had been doing a lot in the palliative care mm -hmm. space, we had talked a lot over the years about what would we do if one of us got sick? Mm -hmm. But it had always been framed in terms of if I got sick, because mm -hmm. my mom died of ovarian cancer. And mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. uh, we so we had talked about, like, I always had ovarian cancer on my list of like, okay, if it's mm -hmm. stage three or four, I don't want, I don't want chemo, I just mm -hmm. want palliative care. So it came as a surprise when it was actually Kathy who had no one in her family who'd ever had cancer. Mm -hmm. um, and although we both knew intellectually that cancer, especially ovarian cancer is not usually genetic. Uh, we mm -hmm. both had in our heads, like, well, no one had cancer in her family. Mm -hmm. So, um, so we sat down and, and had a really hard conversation that very first day about what we were going to do. And so she decided that day that she did not want chemo. She did not want radiation, uh, only wanted uh, surgery to be able to debulk, uh, be able to give her some symptom management, like really help alleviate some of the digestive problems, um, and wanted aggressive palliative care. And mm -hmm. she also decided that we should use the opportunity, the bad, you know, the bad situation, turn it into an opportunity and help educate people about, about palliative care, about end of life care and about um, LGBTQ folks at the end of life. Mm -hmm. So it was, um, it was a, it was shocking and she was a very, very private person. So I was never a private person. She was a very mm -hmm. private person. And so the two, for both of us together, for her to go to the place of, I want to be totally open was a very unusual thing for her. Um, mm. And uh, I think it, I think it ended up being a good choice, but it was, it was definitely, it was the, it was a hard shift for us because we had always been doing our education within the professional realm. And now we were taking what was what we were experiencing as, you know, Kathy is the patient, me as the spouse, Grayson is the son, um, and and sharing a really personal experience. Hmm. So yeah, it was um it was a bit surreal, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh mm -hmm. part of what we wanted to do also was to let people know what it's like to face a serious diagnosis. Mm -hmm. and know from the very beginning how the story is going to end mm -hmm. 
but also be able to have some control over what the story looks like between the, you know, the beginning of the story and the end of the story. And so we knew how the story would end, but that navigating that process of living with limited time, um, it, it was, it was eye opening for me to see how challenging it was, even for people that we knew and loved folks really struggled with what to say. If they can't say, oh, you're going to fight this, you're going to beat this, you're going to get better. If you say, mm -hmm. no, I know she's dying. Mm -hmm. When you take away that narrative, that call and response of you're going to beat this, you're a fighter, you're strong. Mm -hmm. People have no idea what to say. Mm -hmm. That's uh, well, first of all, I'm, I'm really so sorry. Thank you. For your loss. Thanks. Yeah. Um, well, so many things I wanted to just comment on, but that last one that you said about taking away people's ability to hide behind the veil of mm -hmm. toxic positivity. Yes. Yeah. Is like silencing for the average human, right? Mm -hmm. Um, because that's the way we just normally react to people. Oh, don't worry. I'll beat this. Mm -hmm. Um, that is the premise of our first chapter in our book called it walk two roads, where we okay. talk about hope for the best, mm -hmm. but also at the same time plan for the rest. Like we cannot ignore the truth and reality of what happens along an illness journey mm -hmm. while we just, you know, put our blinders on and just hope, 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 hope without, mm -hmm. without realistic I, information. Yeah. I totally agree. And the idea about hoping for the best, you know, deciding what the best looks like. And yeah. for Kathy, even though she had spent her whole life, you know, ever since college working in the in the hospice and palliative care field, she wasn't a clinician. Mm -hmm. And so the thing she hated the most was interacting with healthcare professionals yeah. as a patient. She hated it. Mm -hmm. And so for her, the best was a non-medicalized end of life mm -hmm. where you know, we would call experts if we needed to make a phone call or send someone mm -hmm. a text, but mm -hmm. otherwise did not want to be mm -hmm. uh, visiting a hospital. And so that, that became kind of a North star for helping figure yeah. out what the best looks like for her. So having followed your story on social media, I'm curious, was part of the reason why she didn't want to have anything to do with the healthcare system, including going to hospice at the end of life, was it because there was a fear of discrimination. Um, so the hospice issue um, was a really painful one for us. And I wish that I had, I mean, looking back, I can't believe I did not give more thought to this before we moved to Charlottesville. Uh, we had planned ahead in terms of palliative care. We had had palliative care in DC. And really we were able to manage um, Kathy's symptoms and things at home with just without patient palliative care. And so we didn't feel the need for hospice because she still was at a level of independence where it would have been more intrusive than helpful. And so in our head, we were thinking, okay, well, when we get to Virginia and we move, then as she gets closer or she gets sicker, we would, we would um, uh, look at a hospice admission. And when we moved to Virginia and when it came time to look at hospices, that's when I realized there were none in our area that had an LGBTQ inclusive non-discrimination statement, which was a big shock. Um, I don't know why I didn't think to look into it ahead of time. I just assumed. And uh, so that that very real fear of getting uh, poor treatment was a big was a big motivator for not welcoming folks in our home um, 
all the hospices here now do have inclusive non-discrimination statements, and they've done a lot of hard work uh, becoming inclusive. But at the time, um, you know, a, a number of hospices reached out and medical directors that we knew, colleagues and friends who said, we will take great care of you. And it was really painful for Kathy and I both to say, but your non-discrimination statement doesn't say that. And until you can do, you can say you're going to give great care to everyone. We can't, we can't do it. And so um, they all changed their non-discrimination statements. I think it was about 10 days before she died. Um, and since then, the hospices have done training and done lots of work with their staff. And I would feel really comfortable seeking care from any of our local hospices now. So, but if the hospices before that um, were delivering person-centered care, then would they have to have um, a non-discrimination? Yeah. I mean, they should have a non-discrimination against anyone, but yeah. would they have to call out different yeah. communities? Yeah. yeah, so because here's why. The non-discrimination statement is the easiest thing in the world. For, it's just words on paper. And if mm -hmm. if a hospice will not take the time to insert words that say, I will not treat you badly because you are gay or trans, mm -hmm. or I'm not gonna treat you badly because of this. If they won't put those words in there, there is no reason to believe that they've spent any time training their staff. And um, it is incredibly important. And it's very easy to have an inclusive non-discrimination statement, Yeah, uh, but it's usually an afterthought. And mm -hmm. so people will say, no, no, but we'll provide great care. Absolutely. And there's intentions, but then intentions are best borne out through action. And so at the very minimum, a non-discrimination statement is just saying, I won't treat you badly because of who you are. And so um, so it is incredibly important. Back to what you were saying before. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's interesting when you say that Kathy was a very private person and, um, you know, uh, her entire life. And then suddenly she yeah. made this decision to, you know, go public about yeah. her cancer journey. We talk a lot about how people die as they live and their style throughout their entire life usually stays pretty resilient. Yes. So there must have been this burning advocacy that she wanted to do yeah. for the LGBTQ mm -hmm. communities um, to, to be able to change her natural style. I mean, that is so. Yeah. I think it's more for huge. the hospice piece. Um, I, I think that the driving force was she always saw herself as an advocate um, and an educator in the hospice space and the mm -hmm. palliative care space. Mm -hmm. The fact that she was a lesbian was kind of a asterisk side note, mm -hmm. but for her, this was a way to really um, be out there around palliative care and, okay. um, and she also said like, it, and I'll never forget because it was mm -hmm. like the first night that of her diagnosis, mm -hmm. how horrible a coincidence it is that I have written the only book on LGBTQ inclusive hospice and palliative care. And my wife ends up getting a terminal diagnosis. And her thing was, she was always a strategist. She's like, mm -hmm. if we don't figure out a way to actually continue to amplify information about hospice and palliative care and the work that I'm doing, mm -hmm. um, we would be missing a, a missed opportunity. And mm -hmm. if if she was nothing else, it was strategic about everything. Mm -hmm. And so um, so I think she was a really private person, but mm -hmm. she also was strategic. 
and it is was and an a terrible and an advocate and it was a mm-hmm. terrible piece of luck mm-hmm. that fell in our lap and mm-hmm. she was never one to miss an opportunity to turn mm-hmm. terrible luck into something better and so that's what we decided to do yeah i mean it's amazing really because when you describe your journey with Kathy there are so many um elements that we talk about in our book that are potential for friction. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, the more a person chooses something that seems to be uh, different from the conveyor belt of mm-hmm. standard of care um, and really truly walks the walk with individualizing mm-hmm. their own care journey, it can really feel like you are countercultural to the medical system and And sometimes those people feel like they get no care because if they don't buy what uh, the healthcare system is trying to sell, um, then the healthcare system doesn't know what to do with them and just says, well, be gone with you. So you have to sort of squirrel yourself away Mm -hmm. and and figure it out by yourself. So I feel like really, um, yeah, I have a lot of admiration for the two of you, for Kathy, for choosing a road less traveled, which is um, her right as a Mm -hmm. person yeah, just how, yeah, she had her own individual way of wanting to approach her illness. And the two of you did something that Sienna and I talk about a bit, um, but we haven't sort of wrapped our head completely around it is this idea of right up front, almost like having a curriculum vitae or a terms of reference mm-hmm. or um, a mission statement or whatever we want to call yeah. it, like what you did on Facebook, which mm-hmm. is hear thee, hear thee. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the things that are going to be helpful yeah. as we go through this journey. These are the things that are non-negotiables here. Yeah. And, you know, everything going forward needs to be measured against this mm-hmm. proclamation. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it works. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, how to encourage other citizens mm-hmm. to know themselves so well that they can write a, a decree mm-hmm. or a proclamation or what did you call yeah. it? I don't know. Like we, a- we ended up calling it a frequently asked questions. Um, so, and like a basic FAQs, like people, yeah. one of them was, how did you miss this? Kathy had all the classic signs of ovarian mm-hmm. cancer, which I got mm-hmm. asked multiple times. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I, I don't want to, I don't want to hear that again. Or yeah. what clinician, um, who missed this? This must've been her, someone's mm-hmm. fault. And it's mm-hmm. like, no, actually people do get sick and people die. Mm-hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. and so that's not, no one made any mistakes. Mm-hmm. She had amazing clinicians and sometimes people get sick. Um, so I think being able to say, put out what, what it is that would be helpful and what isn't. Um, yeah. What would you is, call that if it wasn't know. frequent? Like, would you call it a terms of reference? Would you call I mean, it a, maybe it's almost like a terms of engagement. Like it's kind oh, of yeah. like this ground mm-hmm. rules for engaging. Or ground rules. Um, yeah. What I found interesting was the number of folks who really struggled. It was so hard. Yeah. Um, we had someone from our faith community reach out a physician and ask if they could please get the pathology report. Uh, because they wanted to do their own read uh, t- to see if it was correct. Um, and I had to tell them, you are so sweet and I really mm-hmm. appreciate it. Um, we don't need another opinion, but but I recognize you're feeling really helpless right mm-hmm. now. And, and then we did is. have um, mm-hmm. 
random people. And when I say random, there were people that were meaningful to Kathy's life um, at an earlier stage in her life, maybe 20 years, 30 years ago, who reached out and said, I need to visit Kathy. I need to reach closure. Mm -hmm. And Kathy, um, anyone who knew Kathy knew that she was like notoriously prickly cranky. Uh, mm -hmm. Like ask anyone who worked with her on like the national consensus guidelines, like mm -hmm. a cranky person, lovely, mm -hmm. loved her to death, but cranky. Mm -hmm. And so when all these people start reaching out, Kathy was like, oh no, Kim, mm -hmm. no. Mm -hmm. And so what I told each person was, I really appreciate that you need to, you feel a need to reach closure mm -hmm. right now Kathy's time is more limited than yours is mm -hmm. and so I'm prioritizing Kathy's needs right now and she mm -hmm. does not feel a need to reach closure mm -hmm. so um, if you need to be connected to bereavement support I can give you and that kind of I felt mm. badly, but <laughs> oh, just you guys are so brave no but you know it it was like what someone's need, if someone needs closure, yeah. that's not Kathy's need. That's no. Right. And sometimes um, there's a blurring of what is my need versus their need. But yeah. did you in your um, frequently asked questions or terms of engagement, did you also offer things you can do? Because I think, yeah, I think, the yeah. Okay. Because I'm just thinking um, through this. Yeah, so we did try to, um, you know, we had said if if people um, want to be supportive or send a note or send a card, mm -hmm. those mm -hmm. things are great. We um, pointed out specifically something that uh, actually of all the things that anyone did for us, the mm -hmm. most helpful thing was the local kennel that used to babysit our dogs, um, kept our dogs. And at the time we had three dogs mm -hmm. for six weeks so that mm -hmm. Kathy could have surgery. And mm -hmm. then we were having our entire house renovated because mm -hmm. we were about to sell it. And mm -hmm. so they would then bring the dogs to come visit Kathy oh, at home lovely. and six weeks and they did not charge us. Mm -hmm. And so the owner of that business is still a dear friend. And mm -hmm. I still say to this day, like the best thing in the world, mm -hmm. because having to deal with three dogs and a wife who was dying and a mm -hmm. home renovation probably mm -hmm. would have pushed me over the edge. Mm -hmm. um, so we did try to include things that people could do to be helpful. And then when people would come to visit when she was hospitalized for her surgery, mm -hmm. um, she wasn't there long. It was less than a week, but mm -hmm. we had a sign on the door that said like the, um, you know, research shows the ideal mm -hmm. dose, love dose for a visit is 15 it's, minutes. Yeah, yeah. So that people would only stay for 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And if people, if Kathy wanted them to stay longer, she would invite them to. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, even folks from our Quaker community, um, mm -hmm. a group of them wanted to have silent meeting for worship at the bedside. Mm -hmm. And Kathy was clear with me that she would rather like stick a fork in her eye than have silent <laughs> worship at the bedside. Mm -hmm. And so she's like hard pass, Kim, you got to tell him no. And I was like, yeah. I love that you all want to be present with us. And the best way to do it is to not be present while in the same space with us, <laughs> like to do that elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's so wonderful to hear, mm -hmm. you know, how you took control of this, you know, this this last chapter of her life. And in many ways, it's it's I can see the social work and, and the uh, <laughs> coming through. And it's mm -hmm. and I guess my question is really, um, you know, were there any parts that you found challenging? Because oh, yeah. like, yeah. And because, you know, people, I think it's always interesting to see people do things that are right, but yet it's still going to be hard. And I'm just curious of what oh, some yeah. of those I mean, were I, that might've caught you by surprise. Yeah, I think the hardest thing, um, Kathy had the best surgeon 
gynecologic mm-hmm. oncologist in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, if I knew anyone with ovarian cancer, I would say they should go to this clinician, the best mm-hmm. um, and amazing and incredible. And she had never had a patient not have chemo. Mm-hmm. Never. She was very mm-hmm. clear that she said, everybody does chemo. Mm-hmm. And one of the hardest things was we had expressed that, you know, before the surgery, the Kathy didn't want chemo. And afterwards, uh, the surgeon was saying, so after X number of weeks, she'll be able to start chemo. And, and I had said, no, Kathy's not doing chemo. Mm-hmm. And she had said, look, if it were my wife, and I was mm-hmm. like, that's why you're not her healthcare power of attorney. Um, Mm -hmm. and so we had some, at one point she joked and she said, you're killing me. And I was Mm -hmm. like, I know this is hard for you and I'll refer you to bereavement care if -hmm. you need. And she was like, oh God, like, you're right. It's not about me. Mm -hmm. The hardest thing for me was not advocating for Kathy was seeing, this will sound weird, but seeing the pain in the clinician and knowing that she didn't have any frame of reference mm-hmm. for someone choosing aggressive palliative care. She'd never seen what it looks like. She didn't know mm-hmm. what it would be like. And she was afraid. She mm-hmm. was really afraid. Um, and so that was hard, but so, not hard to convince her, just hard to um, like, not to, I don't want to say support, hard to like nudge her along on the journey um, mm-hmm. because we were, we were comfortable with the decision mm-hmm. we were making. I think for clinicians, because Mm -hmm. I don't think they realize that the best chemotherapy they have is themselves. Um, and that, you know, you can still care for someone if you don't offer them treatment and it's Mm -hmm. not just in the form of a card. Mm -hmm. It is, you know, checking in, how are you doing? Um, you know, just being journeying with a person Mm -hmm. is the best medicine, uh, but all too often they, they feel if they can't give their standard, um, tr- tools mm-hmm. that they can't, that I have nothing to offer you, but there's yeah. so much they can still offer. I mean, I think, I think she learned. So in the hospital, um, she made a con- she was amazing at doing, um, visits to the bedside mm-hmm. and she would bring the nurses from the unit at the bedside and be there like 15 or 20 minutes. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said something about, she's not had patients choose palliative care. That's not mm-hmm. something that she's had patients choose and particularly not upfront. So Kathy had palliative care is primary and oncology is really just consulting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she said, I don't have people choose palliative care. And Kathy said, well, because she was cranky, you probably explain it wrong to everyone. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, this is not good. Mm-hmm. And so um, then she, I was there and she said, um, tell us how you do it like pretend that we're a patient. Mm-hmm. And so the doctor tries to explain and does not a good job. Mm-hmm. And so then Kathy's like, that's bad. Kim, you explain palliative care. And then the surgeon was like, you make it sound good. I'm mm-hmm. like, no, that's actually what palliative care is. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was a, it was an important dialogue. Like mm-hmm. I felt like it was a positive dialogue throughout. Um, and I'm so grateful to that physician mm-hmm. really. Um, she, gave Kathy uh, the best quality of life possible by doing an amazing job with the surgery Mm -hmm. and gave Kathy comfort in the time that she had. In Canada, we are trying to convince specialists like the oncologists that they can also provide palliative care 
that they don't have to be transferred to a new team. Yes. Um, and that we don't separate them here or we try That's not good. to separate them as much. But I know our countries are a little bit, we use the the terms hospice and palliative care a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I but- hope that we become a little bit more like Canada in terms of that like unified approach to seeing yeah. palliative care really is, it's a component of good quality. It's a philosophy. Yeah. So I think that's what we're trying to do with the waiting room revolution. And I really hope the idea is applicable everywhere. You know, after losing your wife, Kathy, you know, what led you to want to update your first book and write a second edition, which was released October, 2023? What was that conversation like with your publisher when you were thinking about the second edition? And so they said, what would it be like if you took the bones of your first book, and then expanded it, added Mm -hmm. new content, and then also um, weaved content throughout from my own personal experience, since that Mm -hmm. personal experience has really provided a new context for Mm -hmm. some of the information from the first book. Mm -hmm. So um, I thought it would be much easier to write, because Mm -hmm. I would be using some of the bones from the first book, but it was a lot harder. Um, Mm -hmm. I had to figure out how to weave through um, pieces of our story and our family story into the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was, it was harder. Mm-hmm. And you just mentioned your family. So what, what do you think all of how you, you and Kathy had chosen to play out? How did, what effect do you think that had on Grayson, who is, who was obviously an integral part and was watching this or learning or being a part of it? What yeah. was that like? So, so Grayson had grown up in a house where we were always talking about hospice and palliative care. One of his first kids books was a book that I, I drew and then laminated. And it was about Sam, the snake who was in hospice. And I don't know why, but Sam had a walker at one point, And so he was like mm-hmm. a little snake and I had <laughs> illustrated the book for him. And we were trying to explain what hospice did. And that was one of his first books. So he always was in a home where we were discussing death and dying. Mm-hmm. Um, when Kathy when the day of Kathy's diagnosis, we called Grayson. He was up in college and his fresh the spring of his um, freshman year and told him what was what was going on, uh, told him that we it looked like Kathy had a fairly advanced cancer and uh, and Kathy was choosing to only do palliative care. And so uh, Grayson made a decision, which I think was an excellent one for him, which was to stay up at school. Because for him, he really wanted to be moving forward um, while also recognizing what was going on um, Mm -hmm. with one of his moms. And so he came home um, in May when the school year ended. And then uh, he, it was interesting. He, he thought it was going to be weird because he would be coming home to the home he had grown up in, in DC, but then we were moving to a brand Mm -hmm. new house. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he was a little bit worried about those transitions lots of change, uh, navigating, losing a parent. And, uh, so he was an, played an active role in everything. Um, Mm -hmm. he took some summer classes online and spent every day, uh, with us as we were going, going through Mm -hmm. the whole, that whole summer when we did the move, um, it was pretty amazing because Kathy said to me, I think I need your dad here. And, uh, I was like, really? She said, yeah, I think I need your dad here because we had to coordinate two sides of a move. I needed to be in DC with the movers and the packers. She needed to be on the receiving end in, in mm-hmm. Virginia. And so my dad, um, who never, ever, ever, ever flies, um, came and flew out. 
to uh, be here in Charlottesville with Kathy and with Grayson. And so they mm. were on one end, I was on the other. And uh, Grayson still talks about it as being some of his best memories of mm -hmm. just being there and my dad uh, supporting them as we went through this whole process. And then the day that Kathy died, um, I think because we were so intimately involved in working with palliative care here, to this day, one of Grayson's favorite people is Dr. Leslie Blackhall, who was the mm -hmm. palliative care physician. Because when Kathy died, um, I did not want to call 911. And I was really clear in advance that I had no intention of calling 911. Uh, but because she did not have hospice care in the United States, you are required to have someone come to the home and declare the death. And that's typically done by calling 911. And so Leslie agreed to come to the house um, in advance, had agreed to this. And so she came and sat at our kitchen table with Grayson and I and did the death certificate and talked to us. And, um, and it was... It was a, a calming interaction. Mm -hmm. It wasn't distressing. It wasn't mm -hmm. an emergency. Um, and it was, it was peaceful. And well, now every year we go at New Year's Eve uh, and Leslie has a, a big party um, of folks because I'm now a colleague of hers here at UVA mm -hmm. and we do work together. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So it's, I think it's impacted Grayson quite a bit in terms of navigating the transition. Interestingly, he says the hardest thing of everything was, um, you know, losing Kathy. And then I started, I started dating a guy several years after Kathy mm -hmm. died. And mm -hmm. Grayson said that I had like ruined him because the one thing mm -hmm. that he thought made him cool was that he had lesbian mothers. <laughs> and then he had a lesbian mothers, but one was dead. And he was like, and now I just have a regular mother. And so <laughs> that is kind of funny. But I think it speaks mm -hmm. to how much healing he's done. The, the, mm -hmm. the biggest trauma at this point is that I ended up getting remarried to a man. Um, and Goodness. so, um, yeah, and he, they get along great. Um, Kim, so how long was it between her diagnosis and her death? Almost six months to the day six months. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm thinking, and of course I'm speaking to a social worker, so I should remind myself that, but that, you know, all of the anticipatory grief mm -hmm. that you three were going through grace and mm -hmm. your father and whoever else was involved, yeah. um, you know, allows people to, you know, not shortly after the death, but, mm -hmm. you know, sooner than you would expect move on with life yeah. because you've, you've done so much of the grieving yeah. because you have faced it. Mm -hmm. So square on, um, those people who, who don't, and they go fighting and kicking and mm -hmm. battling and, you know, all the, you know, toxic positivity, Yeah, their grief really kicks in yeah. at the moment of death. And, and that's, where we see people taking a, a little bit longer, not that there's a time mm -hmm. frame, but sure. You know, some people, and, and you said it took two years before maybe you found someone mm -hmm. else, but it would be no surprise because you had already been saying goodbye mm -hmm. and preparing and I think that yourself. There's, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so important to do that. One of the things yeah. that we did, we, Kathy knew that we wanted, we, there's a house up in Maine that we used to rent and mm -hmm. we would love going there. Um, and we would rent it every couple of years. And Kathy wanted to go there one last time and have friends and family come and have people be able to say goodbye. And 
no one was pretending that she wasn't dying. Everyone was very clear that this would be the last time. Um, and one of Grayson's, one of the things Grayson had said that he was saddest about was that Kathy would not see him graduate from college. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we did was say, we're not going to just put that aside and say, mm -hmm. I'll be, you'll, you know, she'll be there in spirit or mm -hmm. any of those things that people say, mm -hmm. we put on a fake graduation ceremony mm -hmm. on the porch of that house we mm -hmm. bought a little disposable purple robe and mm -hmm. we did, I, I drew and it's horrible because I'm a bad mm -hmm. artist, but mm -hmm. a, a quarter diploma that shows mm -hmm. he was fourth way through mm -hmm. and um, played pomp and circumstance and did a graduation and took graduation pictures with Grayson yeah. and Kathy. Mm -hmm. And it was really hard, but I have mm -hmm. to say like doing that grieving then mm -hmm. made it so much more powerful when Grayson was graduating from college. Yeah. And yeah. then he chose as the picture of his graduation announcement, mm -hmm. the picture of him graduating with Kathy. Mm. Um, so we'll see. yeah, a planning ahead, I think can help if you just face head on. I think also um, you describe many of the ironic silver linings to mm -hmm. an expected death um, where you can harness the time you have. Mm -hmm. And there's all these beautiful, incredible moments um, that are unforgettable and so important mm -hmm. to the survivors um, that people don't get when they I agree. put their head in the sand or put mm -hmm. their blinders on. So I, I think people think that dying is horrible. Uh, and, you know, for some, it comes too early in life and some mm -hmm. are not ready to die. But because dying is a process, it's not a mm -hmm. moment in time, right? There is this beautiful coming together and I agree. special things you would do that you wouldn't do otherwise. Kim, we're almost out of time. Um, what advice do you have for the listeners who are facing a life-changing diagnosis as patients, families, or healthcare providers? Yeah, I think asking people what's important to you, um, who are the people who are important to you and what is important to you in the time that you have, um, asking questions about who are the people you do want to be with you near the end and who are the people that you really don't want there, um, because that's true of anyone, that there may be people that they don't want there. And, um, and I think also always being, always approaching every interaction um, with the assumption that you don't know anything about that person. So mm -hmm. don't make assumptions. Um, don't, don't make any assumptions. Always treat each person that you're working with as, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's just one person. And so you want to learn as much as you can about that, mm -hmm. about that person as a human being. Mm -hmm. And I think also just recognize that regardless of what someone's own personal beliefs are. So some healthcare providers have professionals have strong feelings about, let's say they have religious feelings or beliefs around homosexuality. You can hold religious beliefs and also recognize that your scope of practice does not include being responsible for the destination of someone's soul after they die. And so mm -hmm. you can still believe things and provide exceptional care. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's an important thing to tell folks is um, I, I don't ask anyone to change their beliefs. I change, mm -hmm. I ask people to change how they practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you uh, so much. So just, yeah. For me, yeah. it was really um, refreshing, actually. This was a joy. I really, I loved this so much. Thanks for listening. 
Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. You can visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, to learn more about our movement and how you can join it. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shopa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Sivak. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketsa.